1: Today's show is also brought to you by our Patreon supporters, including our Commodore class. That's Commodore's Scurvy Pete, Kane, Kenway, Hefe, Zoomin, Black Tip, Matthew the Navigator, Bull, Vertigon, Conifalinde, Rumgut, and Bootstraps Bailey. Hello. Welcome to the Pirate History Podcast. My name is Matt. Thank you for listening. Were I to write a novel about this era in Caribbean piracy that we've been covering, that buccaneer era, I would choose to tell that story through the eyes of one pirate. If I were to tell the story of exiled Europeans seeking refuge in the New World and taking to the high seas in search of revenge and fortune, this pirate would be the perfect candidate. However, it would have to be a novel. Historical fiction, I would need the freedom to take some artistic license with his story. There are narrative questions of his emotions and his story arc, but there are also historical questions to answer. Where was this pirate here on this raid on this day? How many pirates did he command? Did he take the outpost or the beach? That kind of thing. The problem is, though, with very few exceptions, we just don't know that kind of thing about, well, really nearly everyone in this story. See, when I began this show, I wanted to tell the stories of men and women on the ground, living the life. I wanted to tell the people's history of piracy. I wanted to tell the stories of slaves and Indians and women, of Jews and mulattoes. I wanted to tell the stories of all the dispossessed people that were active in this story. And they were all there. These pirate ships and ports and their pirate havens, they were filled with the most varied groups of people you can imagine. However, we've mostly covered the captains. That's really one of my failings. I need to do more digging, more research to find the stories I want to tell. And it's also, in part, a failing of the source materials. Especially in this buccaneer era, the sources aren't exactly exhaustive or inclusive. If I were to write that hypothetical novel about the Buccaneers, I would have to invent characters, or at least deeply fictionalize real people, to tell the stories of those who weren't white Protestant ship captains. But make no mistake, those people were there. Even when histories don't mention those people or they actively whitewash them, they were actually there. One of our main players today, Captain DeGroff, has been painted and portrayed through the years as a white man, but he was likely biracial. And a not insignificant number of the Buccaneers were gay. The majority were probably at least bisexual. Now, the captains may have been Protestants, or let's be honest here, they probably didn't care about God at all, but their crews would have had Jews and Indian religions and West African religions all on board practicing their own faiths together. Although, to be fair, there probably weren't any Catholics. Now, on board, there weren't many women during the Buccaneer era, not yet at least. They were in ports, but not cruising. Happily, we're about to introduce our first major name in the history of women in piracy, and as time moves on, we'll see more and more of them. And not just women, but people of all different groups. Not because there were more of them in these latter years than there were in the Buccaneer era necessarily, but because people finally started writing about them. After the success of books like The Buccaneers of America and the writings of Dampier and Bartholomew Sharp, publishers and authors back in Europe realized there was an audience for this stuff, an audience beyond the Lords of Trade and the King. There was a middle-class audience that paid money to read stories about pirates, and as these publishers rushed to fill that demand, the stories got more detailed and therefore more inclusive. We have stories there about daily life on board pirate ships and the real people that lived those lives. If we had records like that for the pirate I mentioned earlier, well, I wouldn't need to invent historical fiction to tell his story in real depth. We would just have it. His name was Pierre Le Picard, and... The reason I would choose him, the reason he was the perfect person from which to tell the story of the history of Buccaneers, well, he was there, for all of it. He was there from the pirates' initial explosion in the 1660s to their eventual decline and their retreat from the Caribbean. This is episode 52, Twilight of the Buccaneers, part one. The very first buccaneers arrived in the New World in the 1620s. Mostly, they were refugees from the French wars of religion. Now, they weren't buccaneers yet, they were just people looking for a place to settle. Some of them chose to settle on the northwest corner of one of the West Indies' largest islands. The Spanish, who occupied the southeastern coast, called the island Santo Domingo, Those French refugees, though, chose instead to call it by the name used by their only neighbors, the Taino people. They called it Haiti. Haiti was, well, you couldn't call it a colony. It was mostly made up of men, and they lived a mostly nomadic lifestyle. They hunted and they trapped for meat and furs, much like the Taino had done and taught them to do. They were named for the racks on which they cured their meats, the Taino Bucan, They gallicized the word and called themselves the Buccani. It wasn't until Pierre Legrand that the Buccani became synonymous with piracy. He and a crew of 28 in what really was an open boat, using those new flintlock muskets, boarded and captured a small Spanish vessel. This set off an eruption of French Buccani piracy. They were eventually chased off of Haiti by Spanish authorities and settled on the nearby island of Tortuga, where piracy really began to take root. Now, the island traded hands a few times. The Spanish came and reclaimed it, built a fort, the French took it back, back and forth. But by 1640, it was back in control of the French, and they now had that fortress to guard their island from incursion. France sent out a new governor, who was open to granting letters of mark to some of those pirates in defense of the island. Those privateers called themselves the Brethren of the Coast. That confederation attracted young men and young women from around the world. Now, many of them were Protestants, a lot of French Calvinists and Dutch Lutherans and English Anglicans. Many of them were petty thieves in exile, Many were gay, and they were searching for a life free from rigid societal structure that they found back in Europe. Many of the women that came, though, were middle class. They were fleeing unwanted marriages or being forced to adhere to their family's plans back in Europe. See, here, they weren't the subject of a lord. In Tortuga, everyone had a voice, a say in their own destiny. And that's the key here. This place afforded otherwise dominated people a chance at freedom. But not just freedom from the shackles of old Europe, it was economic freedom. If you could make it to Tortuga, you had opportunities. You could join the Brethren and take to sea to attack Spanish ships, and if you were in the Brethren, you had a vote. in every decision that took place on board, you had a say that allowed you to make a real living and make a name for yourself, something that was closed off to most of these people back in Europe. These were lower-class capitalists. And this was a time before any of those words really meant anything to the people living those lives, but it attracted people from all different backgrounds. There were escaped slaves joining crews, and they got a vote. They could earn an equal share. Some of those Taino people, who were displaced and brutalized by the Spanish, well, they jumped at the chance for revenge. Now, the women were mostly forbidden from serving on board Brethren ships. It was part of that old superstition that women on board were bad luck, and that prejudice would continue for some time until a very few talented pirates proved just how foolish those prohibitions were. But for now, those women had the same sort of economic freedom that the pirates did. Women ran most of the affairs back in Tortuga. Many of those middle-class women who fled to the New World served as fences and merchants for the pirated goods, It was the sort of job that many women in Europe with some education might have, but here they could actually keep their profits rather than giving them away to their fathers or husbands or whoever rightfully owned the business. Now the brothels, in these early days, were owned by women. Oftentimes they were run in much the same situation as those pirate ships. They had a say in how the place was run and the rules of the house, and even to call them brothels is really a misnomer. They were more like, well, well. look, pirates didn't have homes waiting for them back at port. They didn't have a quiet farm and a family in Tortuga that they retired to. They were homeless, which is honestly not the worst way to think about the pirates. If you're ever wondering what it was like to be in the middle of a pirate raid, imagine being confronted by a gang of homeless veterans with Serious drinking problems, spouting off about God and the government, and then pulling out an antique pistol and demanding your wallet. And, if you refuse to give up your wallet, they'll burn your house down. When they returned to Tortuga, or eventually to Port Royal, or wherever, they had these establishments. They would be better described as hospitals, in the old sense of the word, a place where you could find hospitality. They were a place where you could grab a drink, served by the woman behind the bar. You could buy a meal, cooked by the women who ran the establishment. You could rent a real room with a real bed. And you could hire some company. But if you broke the rules, if you got violent or mistreated the staff, well, those pirates would be lucky if they found themselves out on the street. It wasn't a quality, no, but it was better for some of these women than their prospects back in Europe were. Eventually, though, the French crown would see all this and clamp down on Tortuga. It was this sense of freedom, this world where you weren't as beholden to the old order and had the opportunity to make your own fortune that, well, that threatened the empires of Europe just as much as the piracy. It was into this world that we introduced Pierre Le Picard. Now, he might have been born in France, and some estimate his birth as early as 1624, but it's likely he was born later, in the late 1630s or early 1640s. Or he may have been born in the West Indies, even potentially in Tortuga, a child of that strange world. Now, some descriptions indicate that he may have been biracial as well, or maybe some of them thought of a Spanish Moorish heritage. Regardless, he was probably sailing on pirate ships by about the 1650s, but our first record of him comes from the Buccaneers of America. He was sailing under Francois Lolonet on their voyage against Maracaibo in 1666. This was where Lolonet earned his reputation for torture and brutality, and we can assume that Le Picard, as a member of his crew, took at least some hand in all that. The next year, on Loloñay's next and last voyage, the pirates assembled to discuss their next move. A pirate called Moses van Klein by the English, who was also called von Kiln and properly Va Klein, chose to leave the expedition. Exquimelin then writes from the 1969 translation quote, Pierre Le Picard, on seeing the others leave, decided to do the same. He sailed along the mainland coast to Costa Rica, where he made a landing at the river Veragua. He marched his men to a small town of the same name and pillaged the place, despite the resistance put up by the Spaniards who had taken up arms. Le Picard and his men carried off several prisoners to their ship, but their plunder amounted to little, for Veragua is inhabited only by poor folk who work at the mines. Their intention had been to go further on and plunder the town of Nata on the South Sea coast. But Le Picard's men could not achieve their object as the Spaniards were in wait for them in great numbers. End quote. So Le Picard was now a captain, and he was sailing alongside other brethren of the coast, namely gel Leca and Roque Brasiliano. In 1669 he returned to Maracaibo under Morgan, and then they sailed on Panama together in 1671 with Pierre Le Picard as captain of the Saint-Pierre. It was here, in the early 1670s, that France really began to flex her authority over Tortuga. And that was when the Buccony fled the island. Those middle-class fences, well, they were shut down in favor of proper, licensed, company-approved merchants. Those brothels were shut down and the women forced into the streets or forced to work for brothel owners who had less care for their well-being. Hyeno and African people were disenfranchised, and if they were unable to flee, well, they were forced back into slavery. This was a hard time for everyone in the sphere of influence of the Brethren of the Coast. The Brethren were essentially disbanded. It was becoming harder and harder to find work at sea, and many turned to logwood cutting until that war broke out in the 1670s. As did almost everyone else we've talked about lately— Le Picard served as a privateer flying French colors. But at war's end, he found himself out of work, and, as did so many others, he returned to piracy. He was older than most others at this point, though. He was probably somewhere in his late 40s, but he was potentially as old as 58. Many of the privateers he sailed alongside were in their 20s or 30s. You see, this is why he would serve as the perfect set of eyes through which to tell this tale of the Buccaneers. His death was reported in 1679, at the end of the war. He may well have actually died here, but in 1682, the acting governor of Jamaica, Henry Morgan, reported a Captain Picard harassing English shipping near Jamaica. And look, I don't want to make ham-fisted analogies here, so I'll just point out that... Yes, Captain Picard was in command with an ethnically and sexually diverse crew. They explored and sought out new civilizations. They boldly went where no man had gone before. There wasn't an android on board, but you can be sure there were some guys with wooden legs and hook hands. There was probably a blind guy. There weren't Klingons, no, but there was probably a cool black guy with great hair. And I assume that whenever they set a new heading, Captain Picard said... Make it so. But, you know, in French. But here's the question, though. Was that Captain Picard the same Pierre Le Picard that attacked Maracaibo and Panama? Morgan didn't come out and say, Captain Picard, notorious pirate who massacred people at Maracaibo, twice, once under my command, and followed me on my quasi-legal mission to attack Panama and burn her to the ground, is now attacking and killing English citizens in my own territorial waters. So it could have been another Captain Picard. Or it could have been another Pierre Le Picard. His first name does get a bit dodgy in the records here, but whether this was the same man or someone new, he apparently sailed alongside Thomas Paine for a time after the war, and then he partnered up with Michel de Gramont. And that right there is as succinct a history of the Buccaneers as I can give up to this point. And Pierre Le Picard was there for nearly all of it. He served under various French captains until he had his sea legs. Then he sailed under Francois Lolonet and Henry Morgan as a captain. He served in the Franco-Dutch War, and he sailed with that new bunch of young pirates that followed the war. He sailed out of Tortuga and Port Royal and the Logwood camps in the Bay of Campeche and the Mosquito Coast, and finally from Petit Guave with Michel de Gramont. Captain de Gramont had a respectable fleet under his command— It was, at the moment, the largest in the Caribbean. There was Pierre Le Picard, there was a Captain Pierre Boat, there was Jan Willems, Thomas Payne, and then a Captain Blot. Now, Grammont sailed in his 18-gun corvette La Colbert. The corvette was a new French ship design introduced in the 1670s during the war. It was slightly smaller and sleeker than a frigate, and it carried a few less guns. They were ideal for Coast Guard ships and for privateers and for pirates. Now, they were larger than traditional sloops of war, which usually formed the backbone of any pirate fleet. The Colbert was among the best ships sailing in pirate hands in those days. The others in the fleet, namely Picard, Willems, and Payne, while they were sailing ten or twelve-gun sloops of war. In 1682, though, their fleet was lurking off the northern coast of Cuba, hoping to intercept Spanish shipping but things weren't going well for them. There were no disasters, just no luck in finding prizes, so most of the fleet just chose to head home for Petit Guave. Payne and a few of the smaller craft in the fleet chose to sail north to the Bahamas and spend some time doing some salvage work. They were hauling Spanish silver up from sunken ships while fighting off any Spanish that might come looking for it or other pirates that wanted a piece of the action. Now, that little fleet made a stop off the coast of Florida, hoping to raid St. Augustine, but they were forced away and just raided a few smaller villages. The rest of the fleet, Michel de Gramont, Pierre Le Picard, Jan Willems, well, they were all just sort of loitering around Petit Guave when a young Dutch captain named Nicholas von Horn approached Captain de Gramont. He had a letter of marque in his possession, granted, after he and his men spent a stint in that Spanish cell— the governor had only granted him that commission on the condition that von Horn bring Grammont along as his lieutenant. Grimaud jumped at the opportunity to sail with him. This letter of marque would give him the opportunity to properly raid a Spanish city again, just like he'd done at Maracaibo during the war. So he agreed to the expedition, but he said that preparations still needed to be made. First, he granted von Horn the use of his ship, the Colbert, to collect the rest of his fleet. There were a few that had remained off Cuba, and the rest were up in the Bahamas. In the meantime, Grammont could outfit von Horn's ship into a decent pirate vessel. So von Horn sailed off and collected those other ships and brought them back to gouave When he returned, the Saint Nicholas, his ship, was refit and ready to sail as a proper pirate vessel. She was a frigate, the largest ship in their fleet, and grammont had stripped her of all her unnecessary weight and loaded up a number of guns. With Van Horn's return, the fleet numbered ten ships. Nicholas Van Horn on board the frigate St. Nicholas, Michel de grammont on the Colbert, Jan Williams, Pierre Baud, while they sailed on the Cagone and De La Gente, respectively. Pierre Le Picard had his own sloop, along with a few smaller boats. The fleet set sail and headed west for Port Royal. All in all, there were about 300 men under sail. It was a decent sized fleet. Nothing to make Spain tremble, but they could take some sizable prizes. However, Michel de Gremont had plans to grow the fleet. First, though, they had to make a stop at Port Royal. They were known pirates, and right now, Port Royal was unfriendly to pirates. Governor Lynch had arrived and was actively hunting pirates as far away as Charlestown in the Bahamas or Barbados in the Windward Islands and Campeche. However, England and France were at peace, and the pirates here had a legitimate letter of mark signed by the governor of Saint-Dominique. So Grammont sent a messenger to the governor informing him of these facts and informing him that they meant no harm to Port Royal or English ships. They merely wanted some time to gather wood and foodstuff for the upcoming voyage. Lynch sent out his French secretary, Charles de la Barre. He was there to treat with the French and Dutch pirates. Lynch wanted to be certain that the pirates were being honest in their intentions and to double-check on that letter of marque. You can be sure that he had several warships at the ready in the meantime. These interactions are the times that I really wish I could go back and see. I just love it when someone puts something like this on screen. I want to know what it was like at this meeting. Was De La Bar imperious? Was he cold? Did he look down his nose at the pirates? Were the pirates, in return, polite, even deferential or subservient? Or was De La Bar... Meek and terrified. Was he clutching his satchel and hiding behind his guards while the pirates loomed over him? Did they intimidate the French secretary? I think, probably, it was neither. Charles de la Barre was just a bureaucrat doing his job. He was French, and he was actually working for the French government. He was a sort of ambassador to Governor Lynch. When Lynch had business with the governor of a French colony, or, say, a fleet of French privateers showed up in his city, it was the French secretary's job to facilitate communication. Right now, France and England were allies, so officials like this were in every major colony. So I imagine the pirates just offered him rum, and he maybe politely declined, but maybe took some wine... He probably checked over their papers, saw that they were in fact legitimate privateers and the employ of France, and saw that everything was in order. He likely asked after some news of Petit Guave or any other big events in the greater West Indian region. He finished his wine and went about his day. But he did have a report for the governor when he returned. He told Lynch that the letter of Mark was made out to Nicholas von Horn, a Dutchman. Van Horn was nominally in command of the fleet. However, it was apparent that Michel de Grammont was actually running the show. All the assembled captains, save Van Horn, were loyal to Grammont, and they took their orders directly from him. Even the crew of the Saint Nicholas was peppered with Grammont's men. He said that the pirates all resented Van Horn for his, quote, insolence and passion. In some ways, this reminds me of a pirate relationship we'll see in 35 years or so. Edward Teach happened upon Steed Bonnet in the swamps of Carolina, and he found a sniveling, oblivious captain who was close to being voted out and probably tossed overboard with a slit throat. But Teach convinced Bonnet to join forces, now, Bonnet acted as though he and Blackbeard were equals, but every man in the fleet was obviously following Teach. There's a quote in Black Sails that illustrates this situation perfectly. Captain Flint happens upon a derelict pirate vessel, belonging to some new-come upstart pirate. Flint argues that they aren't beholden to help the other ship because of the quality of the men sailing her. He says, quote, These days, any man who can sew a black flag and get ten fools to follow him can take a prize. They can take it because of the fear that I, and men like me, have instilled in their prey, but they can't do what I can do. They're not built for it." And that's precisely what we're seeing here. What exactly had Nicholas von Horn done to become admiral of a fleet of pirates? He took a merchant job and ran off with the ship. He kidnapped a few slaves and immediately sailed into a Spanish port where he was promptly arrested, clapped in irons, and thrown into a cell. I mean, come on here. Michel de Grammont was a hero of the Dutch War. He'd sailed on Maracaibo with 1,500 men. He'd taken her and ransacked a dozen more cities. He'd captured scores of ships. He'd had his throat cut by a Spanish saber and lived to fight on. He had the allegiance of the largest fleet of pirates currently sailing the West Indies, simply because he was willing to do what needed done. And Nicholas von Horn, he had a slip of paper. Now that slip of paper might grant them passage here in Port Royal. It might legitimize them to the French, but that's really about it. The Spanish weren't about to take a look at that letter of Mark and say, ''Oh, you escaped one of our jails, did you?'' ''Well, very good.'' All seems to be in order here, so feel free to take all of our silver. Anything that they took would be won at the point of a sword, and to do that, the pirates needed someone they trusted in command. I have to think that Von Horn knew this to be the case. The pirates wouldn't be shy about exactly who was in charge here, but Von Horn continued to act as though he were actually the admiral. He gave orders. Now, if those orders didn't get in the way of the real plan, they were carried out. But if they did, Grimaud just ignored them and went about carrying out the real plan. After leaving Port Royal, their plan headed out to the Bay of Honduras. It was a perfect place to recruit a few other pirates. When they arrived, they found their Captain Francois Lesage and the late Captain Jacob Evertson very much alive. Both of the men had decent ships and were roving around the Yucatan region, but they were happy to sign up with this fleet and take some real prizes. It was here that John Coxon sailed in to try and recruit Jan Willems to go off hunting Jean Hamlin, but Jan Willems declined. Now, Coxon was working for the law here. He was under a commission to hunt pirates, especially Jean Hamlin, but he was an old buccaneer and one of the greats. He knew these men, and he had their, well, he had what passed for trust between pirates. He wasn't about to try to take them into custody. There were way too many pirates here, first of all, but he didn't really want to. Some of these men were friends. Grimaud and Willems were perfectly candid with Coxon about their business. They were here to recruit a fleet. They needed as many sailors as possible. They had told almost no one what their real plan was, but they told Coxon they were, quote, trying to unite all the privateers for an attack on Veracruz, end quote. Veracruz was ripe for plunder. It hadn't been attacked in... Well, it hadn't been attacked in living memory. Maybe Pierre Le Picard was old enough to remember the last time Veracruz had been plundered, but if he was, he would have been a boy, and certainly none of the other pirates were old enough to remember it. Francis Drake had taken the city a century prior, but the last raids had been almost 50 years ago, in the 1630s, and mostly they'd been scattered. And therein lies the problem. Veracruz was certainly a rich prize, but they had a strong militia. They had a fleet of warships, and they had the fortress San Juan de Ulia. It was the biggest, richest, most important port in all of Nueva España. Veracruz was the entry point for every slave brought to New Spain. From there those slaves were transported all over the Viceroyalty, Veracruz was also the shipping point for all of the goods produced in New Spain. There were gold mines there and massive plantations. The city was bursting with plunder. But all those riches meant that Veracruz was the most heavily guarded port in New Spain, maybe the most heavily guarded in all of the New World, outside of perhaps Cartagena and Havana. It was lunacy to try and take the city. All the same, the pirates meant to try. Maybe it was just crazy enough to work. The reward? I mean, Maracaibo had been plundered half a dozen times in the last 15 years. Attacking Portobello was almost an annual tradition for the Buccaneers. Campeche had been drained of almost every bit of treasure that the pirates could squeeze out of it. Panama was a ruin, destitute. Veracruz was rich and worth it if they could recruit enough pirates crazy enough to try. Certainly they tried to recruit Coxon, but he was happy to have a stable job and a port to call home without the threat of a noose. Now right here I like to imagine Nicholas Von Horn stamping his feet in protestation. They couldn't just tell John Coxon about their big plan. He was the law. He would run to tell Lynch all about them. And then I like to imagine Jan Willems and Michel de Grammont turning to him, blank-faced, and saying, Quiet boy, you know who this is? This is John Coxon. And then turning back to the grown-up business. I do wonder, though, exactly how Coxon knew to come here to the Bay of Honduras. It was a well-known haunt of pirates, and likely there would be some ships about but it seems like Coxon knew that these pirates would be here. Which makes me wonder what kind of network the pirates had in all of the major port cities. How did they get the word out that there was a meeting of the buccaneers? Remember those hospitals I mentioned earlier, run by the women of the West Indies? Well, they were still around. The hospitals in Tortuga had been shut down, but well, while Petit Guave was the seat of government in Haiti... The real home of the pirates was another settlement just a few miles down the coast. It was built around one of those hospitals. It was so central to the affairs of the region that the pirates dubbed the city Opital. Today, that city is the largest in Haiti. It's the capital, Port-au-Prince. I wonder if that hospital, and her sisters in Port Royal and Nassau, and all of the other pirate havens, Well, I wonder if they provided a sort of networking service for the pirates. And if so, I wonder exactly what their cut was. But whether it was the women at these hospitals, or secret agents at the docks, or Henry Morgan himself, someone in Port Royal was told of the plan to meet at the Gulf of Honduras. And that someone, John Coxon, who was an old pirate, well, it was someone he knew to ask. He basically followed the pirates to the Gulf after they left Port Royal, but when Jan Willems declined his offer, John Coxon sailed away. The fleet chose to stick around. They roved around the bay, looking for their quarry. But not ships to take, not prizes, not necessarily at least. They were here looking for two ships belonging to two of the most feared pirates in the world, Lorho de Graaf and his lieutenant, Mikhail andrizoon Captain de Graaf and Captain Mikhail were known to be around the bay in command of quote two great ships, a bark, a sloop, and five hundred men. That would, if added to the fleet under Grammont, bring their number to almost nine hundred men, to four warships and at least a dozen smaller craft. That was enough to execute the plan of Michel de Grammont. However, just because they weren't looking for prizes doesn't mean they wouldn't take one if it fell into their lap. One night, while out cruising, Nicholas Van Horn happened upon La Nuestra Signora de Consolacion and La Nuestra Signora de Regla. They were two fat merchantmen, and they were just lying at anchor off the coast. They would be easy prizes to take, and to Van Horn's way of thinking, they would cement him as a real pirate, worthy of the respect he deserved. So he put it to a vote, and the men on board his Saint Nicholas were more than happy to take this easy haul. They put canoes into the water and crept up on them. Silently they boarded the vessels. With pistols aimed and sabers drawn, they took the deck. There was virtually no resistance. There was only a single watchman on either ship. The pirates then ventured below decks and found them equally empty, just the cook and a carpenter and maybe a few hands. It was a skeleton crew. Then they found that the holds were just as empty, There was some foodstuff and water, a bit of lumber, but no cargo. No gold or silver, no jewels, no indigo or spices, not even any sugar or tobacco. It was a disappointment. But von Horn ordered the Spanish put ashore and the ships taken. At least he could salvage something out of this. Then he put boats back in the water to head back to the St. Nicholas and continue on. Little did Nicholas von Horn realize, though, Someone had seen him approach those two Spanish merchantmen, someone who would be angry about it, and someone who would be waiting for him when he returned. Von Horn made his way to the St. Nicholas and found her decks occupied, and his men there cowed by a group of the most fearsome sailors he'd ever seen. They were armed, they were angry, and they were all looking at him. Their captain approached. He was tall and good-looking. He was blonde and well-dressed. He had impeccably trimmed facial hair. He had a rich, gentlemanly air about him. But right now, he looked furious. Von Horn didn't know him, but some of the men in his crew seemed to, and they looked terrified. The man introduced himself. His name was Captain Lorho Cornelis Baudouin de Graff and those two ships Von Horn had stumbled upon had been his for the taking. Their crews were away on the mainland. They were busy selling their cargo at a commercial fair far inland. They would be returning in a few days with all of their profits in gold and silver and a rich cargo of indigo. De Graf had been lying, hidden just down shore, waiting for those ships to load up with their cargo and weigh anchor. This was when de Groff was going to take them and carry away a king's ransom, and Nicholas von Horn had stumbled in and ruined everything. You see, that's the difference here. Skilled, experienced captains operated like that. They gathered intelligence, they formulated a plan, and then they executed it. That's how they earned money. That's how they gathered together fleets of hundreds and hundreds of pirates willing to follow them, even risk their lives for them. And upstarts like this Von Horn think they can just waltz in and do the same job? They happen across a couple of ships and just think, hey guys, what do you say we go get them? Any pirate worth their salt would observe the ships, they would analyze the situation, and maybe they would actually send somebody over to scout them out. They wouldn't just march on over and alert everyone to their presence. But Von Horn was clearly not worth his salt, and he'd cost DeGroff thousands of dollars. I imagine that von Horn tried to defend himself. I even imagine that he told de Graaf about um his plan to attack Vera Cruz. But de Graaf wasn't having any of it. He let the crew of the Saint Nicholas off without any violence, but he sailed away in a rage. Von Horn was forced to sail back to Michel de Gramont with his tail between his legs. He told Gramont the news that he'd run into de Graaf and he'd sailed off in anger. But Grammont rushed off to meet up with De Graff. The whole fleet followed him, but it was Grammont who caught up with De Graff. You see, that's why those corvettes were so impressive. De Graff was sailing the frigate he'd stolen from the Armada de Barlovento, La Francesca. He'd renamed it Dauphin. His lieutenant, Mikhail Andrizoon, was sailing the frigate Tigray. Both were impressive ships and carried a lot of guns, but the Colbert was much faster and she carried enough guns for any decent pirate. But when Grimaud caught up with de Graff, he brought him up to date on the situation. This fool, Van Horn, had a letter of marque in his possession. He had a grievance and the right to attack the Spanish, but Governor Jacques Neveu, back in Petit-Gouave, brought in Grammont to actually lead the expedition. It was his plan. It was his men and his fleet. Van Horn was just there for convenience, and a piece of paper. They had 400 men between them, but they needed de Groff and Andres Zun to carry it through. So de Groff stuck around. The rest of the fleet arrived the next day, and on April seventh, 1683, the largest gathering of pirates to meet in years, disembarked and met in council on the beaches of Honduras. Their plan, they told everyone assembled, was to attack Veracruz. It was west of the Yucatan, west of Campeche, far into the Gulf, on the coast of Nueva España. The pirates, the average crewmen, all voted aye to attack Veracruz. However, rather than all join forces under their Admiral, Von Horn, Lorjo de Graf required that he keep command of his fleet. They would sail as partners to Von Horn, but not as subordinates. Right here, I like to imagine Nicholas von Horn stamping his feet in protestation. Partners, he was in command here. He had the letter of marque. He had orders from Governor Jacques Neveu, Sieur de Ponquet himself. Then, I like to imagine Michel de Grammont and Jan Willems turning to him and saying, Quiet boy, you know who this is? This is Lorho de Graaf. And then turning back to the grown-up business. And that clause, that de Groff be a partner, not a subordinate, was a point of contention. Likely the entire meeting would have fallen apart right here, if it was left to the captains. You see, de Groff was still furious with von Horn, and von Horn felt he'd been unfairly maligned for taking a prize. Grimond was there to try and mediate, but there was real animosity there. However, it was the crews that decided the day, the average sailors, this was a pirate gathering, and every man had a vote, and all of them wanted a piece of Veracruz. The eyes had it, so the meeting was concluded, and they set their plan in motion. Lorho de Graaf and Mikhail Zoon gave command of their frigates over to two other captains, probably Jan Willems and Pierre Le Picard. These were the two best ships in the fleet. But instead, Miquel Andrizon and Lorjo de took those two captured Spanish merchantmen, Nuestra Señora de Consolación and Nuestra Señora de Regla. They weren't bigger ships, they weren't faster ships, they certainly didn't have more guns, but they were Spanish. They had Spanish hulls, they had Spanish sails, they flew Spanish colors, they looked exactly like what they were, Spanish merchantmen. So with the fleet assembled, they set sail. Just over a month after their meeting on that Honduran beach on the afternoon of May 17th, 1683, those two fat, slow, lazy ships ambled toward Veracruz. They anchored just offshore, and this wasn't out of the ordinary. Veracruz's harbor was treacherous. There were sandbars and shifting shoals under the water. Then there was Fort San Juan de Ulia. It sat on an island at the mouth of the harbor, which further obstructed an easy entrance to the harbor. As Veracruz saw it, all that was to the good. It would make it difficult for enemy ships and pirates to approach. However, in the failing light of the late afternoon, those shoals could sink unwary ships. So a lot of legitimate captains chose to wait out the night offshore then in the morning they could enter the harbor with better light. This is exactly what the guards at the fortress and those atop the high stone walls of Veracruz proper thought those two merchantmen were doing. There was no cause for alarm, nothing out of the ordinary. In the very first hours of May 18th, Lorjo de Graf and Mikhail Andrizoon led 300 men quietly ashore. They landed just two or three miles down the coast from Veracruz. It would be tricky to get into the city unnoticed, but that was exactly what they intended to do. It was essential to their plan. Veracruz was a city of 6,000 inhabitants. Maybe a quarter of those were men of an age to bear arms. There was a standing army garrison of 300 Spanish regulars, with 300 more regulars manning San Juan de Ulia. Then, Veracruz had at least four hundred militiamen in the city as well. That's one thousand trained and well armed soldiers. And then there were about another one thousand men who weren't soldiers at all, but they had guns and families to think of. But de Graaf was a tactician. In much the same way that he'd scouted those two Spanish ships, he'd scanned the walls of Veracruz with his looking glass. They were tall, and they were strong. A frontal assault would have been doomed to fail, but there was a place where the wall was relatively lightly manned, and the sand had piled up in dunes more than half up the walls. So the pirates all wore dark colors. They carried no flames, and they had no ammunition boxes to rattle around and make noise. Every man had a pistol, but it was only to be used in the most dire of circumstances They were not to fire even in defense of their lives unless the entire party was ambushed and forced into a retreat. It would be swords and sharp knives that decided the night. De Groff led his 300 men up to that point on the wall without detection. They climbed the dunes and used grappling hooks and ropes to climb the rest of the way. Soon all 300 of them had climbed atop the walls of Veracruz. No one cried out. No one raised an alarm. So the party of pirates split into groups. They swept around the walls silently. Unsuspecting guards who were looking outside of Veracruz had their throats slit and they were dragged away. Then pirates were left in their places to avoid arousing suspicion. Should anybody look in their direction, they didn't want them to see a guard missing and then guardhouses were swept over by deadly shadows. Barracks full of sleeping men were infiltrated and neutralized. All of this silently. You see, these were the best pirates in the world. The rest of the fleet under the other captains, well, they were pretty good. They got the job done. Think of them as sending in the marines. But Lorho de Graaf was the greatest pirate captain sailing on any ocean anywhere in the world. That attracted the best of the best. And if you weren't one of the best, well, you didn't have a place on his crew. Those pirates who were currently sweeping the walls of Veracruz, they were experts in their field. Think of them as Navy SEALs, only murderous, rapacious thieves. They plied their trade that night for maybe three hours, undetected, As dawn was approaching, any hope of an honest defense of Veracruz was left dead, bleeding out, and no one in town had any idea what was coming. De Groff had done his job, he'd proven his reputation. However, the other 600 pirates in their fleet hadn't been idle. They'd had to land a bit farther out than De Groff, but as dawn approached, so did they. When the rest of the pirates were approaching the city, de Groff opened the gates, and at dawn on May 18th, 600 pirates swarmed into Veracruz and opened fire on an unsuspecting city. Their need for stealth was gone. The pirates came in screaming and firing their guns. They threw grenades and firepots. They cut down anyone in their path. The militia roused themselves, but de Groff was ready for them. He'd already taken the armory and he'd swarmed the barracks. The militia was forced into pockets of fighting and that inevitably led to their death. The forts on Juan de Ulia attempted to mount a counterattack. They were only a third of the pirates' numbers, but an organized attack of 300 men might rally the city together. However, they were out there on an island. They would need to send the men over on boats. And when they tried to do just that... La Dauphin and La Tigre sailed up and blew those boats out of the water. Those thousand regular men with guns and families I mentioned, well, some of them did try to hole up and create pockets of resistance, but what could maybe two dozen untrained merchants armed with hunting muskets do against hundreds of trained killers? The citizens of Veracruz were overwhelmed. It took less than an hour, and the fighting was done. Every Spanish soldier was either dead or captured. The pirates, well, they lost only a handful. The citizens were all herded into the cathedral and put under guard. Then the pirates turned to questioning. They wanted information. They wanted to know about treasure. The city hadn't had warning that the pirates were coming, so they didn't have time to hide it. The pirates wanted to know where the treasure was and how to get it. If you didn't give them what they wanted, you were tortured. And this wasn't the slow, methodical torture of inquisitions and interrogations. They weren't slowly putting bamboo under people's fingernails. No, it was tell me what I need to know, or I start cutting off limbs. It was quick, it was sloppy, but it was effective. The pirates invaded storehouses on the tips of lightly tortured citizens. They invaded churches and defiled them as they were wont to do. They ransacked the houses of the wealthy... But there wasn't what you might have come to expect from these sort of raids so far. There was no debauchery. There was no drinking all the town's wine until sloppy drunk. There was no going after the women. There was no eating the larders dry. See, they had work to be about. If one of the men started drinking or eyeing the women, he was quickly upbraided by one of his fellows. If you want to drink, well, you can afford all the drinks you want when we get back to Opital. You want a woman? Well, they've got those there, too. Get back to work. It wasn't honor that stayed their hand in Veracruz. It was time. See, the pirates here were on a very tight schedule. They only had about four days to search and plunder the largest city on the coast of New Spain. Now, they could do it with 1,000 men, but there was no time for pleasure. In four days' time, they were sailing away from Veracruz, They had sacks of plunder that amounted to a decent haul, but they also had 200 of the city's finest and their wealthiest as captives. They really were the city's best. The governor was there, the bishop was there, the council was there, all of the wealthiest merchants and noble wives and daughters and all sorts of dignitaries. The pirates made for an island just off the coast with ancient Mesoamerican structures on it. The pirates didn't know it, but Hernan Cortes, the conquistador, explored the island in 1518. One of the men under Cortes later would write, We found two stone buildings of good workmanship, each with a flight of steps leading up to a kind of altar, and on those altars were evil-looking idols, which were their gods. Here we found five Indians who had been sacrificed to them on that very night. Their chests had been struck open, and their arms and thighs cut off, and the walls of these buildings were covered in blood. All this amazed us greatly, and we called this island Isla de Sacrificios. The pirates didn't know what it was called, but considering the events to follow, it was a fitting name. Pirates waited with their hostages for several days. They were waiting for Vera Cruz to come up with a ransom. Later, some of those hostages would write that Lorho de Graaf was a gentleman, as far as a pirate holding captives could be considered one. He saw that they were properly fed, he saw that they were cared for. He ensured that no one was unduly harmed, and he kept the women safe from any pirates who might have notions about how they were to be treated. Now, you couldn't call their accounts glowing praise for de Groff, but they realized their situation, and they were thankful that someone with at least a shred of honor was in command. Meanwhile, though, Nicholas von Horn was growing more and more agitated. He felt shortchanged by all of the pirates. De Groff had led the assault on Veracruz on an expedition that rightly belonged to von Horn. It was his to command. The other pirates sat in council, without him. They ignored his commands, and they made decisions all on their own. They all deferred to de Groff, though. They took his suggestions like orders. They heaped praise on both he and his men. Even the prisoners seemed to like him. So von Horn decided to reclaim his command. He was going to take matters into his own hands. He decided that all of this waiting was taking too long, so he chose to send Vera Cruz a message. He ordered 12 of the prisoners taken and brought to him. He was going to remove their heads and send them back to the city. Whether he ordered them taken to those Aztec sacrificial temples to have their heads removed, I can't say. Now this was in direct opposition to de Graf's orders. One of the men ran off to tell de Graff what was happening, and the pirate rushed back with as many men as he could muster. He told Von Horn, who was preparing to have those heads removed, quote, It was not right to behead any surrendered men who had been granted quarter. End quote. Now, Von Horn was harboring some serious animosity towards de Graaf, so he drew his sword and he ordered Lorho de Graaf to stand down. He chose poorly. De Graaf drew his own sword. In one smooth, swift motion, he slashed Van Horn's wrist, the wrist holding his own sword, and then he drew another deep gash across his chest. Whether Nicholas Van Horn fell back onto one of those Aztec sacrificial altars, clutching his bleeding wrist to the open wound in his chest, I can't say. Either way, though, de Graff ordered Van Horn clapped in irons and taken to the Dauphin. In one of those moments that's... Well, not exactly irony, but nearly averted tragic coincidence maybe. The payment arrived from Vera Cruz shortly thereafter, so soon after this event that even if Von Horn had cut those heads off and sent them to Vera Cruz, well, he was too late. The payment was already on its way. However, they sent their payment in slaves. That was really what amounted for most of the wealth of Vera Cruz. There were 1500 men and women and children presumably. Who were marched aboard the pirate ships to be sold again in friendly ports. There was a reason, though, that the pirates had been in such haste when ransacking Veracruz. The Plata fleet was expected to the city any day now. Now, that might sound like a rich prize. Spanish plate fleets had tons of silver. But the fleet was comprised of armed Spanish galleons. She was accompanied by gunboats and fire ships and even a ship of the line. This was not a fleet the pirates wanted to encounter. Immediately after leaving the Isla de Sacrificios, the pirates encountered the Plata fleet. If they were forced into an encounter here, the pirates were doomed. However, the admiral of the fleet, Diego Fernandez de Zaldivar, chose not to engage the pirates. He allowed them to flee. He didn't want to fight and potentially lose one of his ships. The pirates fled into the wind. Nicholas von Horn, though, was sitting in the brig aboard the Dauphin. I don't imagine he was receiving the best medical treatment, but David F. Marley writes of him, quote, As the pirate fleet slowly beat back around the Yucatan Peninsula, von Horn's life ebbed away. He died off Elamuerges on June twenty fourth, 1683, his body being rowed ashore and buried in an unmarked grave near Mexico's Cape Lograte, where it, presumably, lies to this day. End quote. i wonder if anyone missed nicholas von horn he had a son who would pass away shortly after his father but i don't know that he had any friends and allies among the pirates before vera cruz he'd been useful but it seems that his use had been used up once the pirates were on the eastern shore of the yucatan the fleet divvied up the earnings and went their separate ways They had gold and silver, but they also had 1,500 human beings to sell, illegally, so they'd have to do so tactfully. In the end, looking back, Veracruz would prove to be the last truly great pirate raid of the buccaneering era. There would be others, but none were 1,000 brethren of the coast marched on a great city. There were none like Lolone at Maracaibo or Morgan at Panama, or, like de Graf and Grimond, at Veracruz. However, the story of de Graff and Grimond isn't finished. When we return to them, we'll follow the fallout of their raid on Veracruz. Much like Morgan's raid on Panama, a raid of that size would have consequences. We'll follow them then to Campeche and Santiago de Cuba and Cartagena, and then we'll introduce one last member into this cadre of buccaneers, the last to be inducted into the Brethren of the Coast, on Dulavu. I'd like to thank everyone for listening. I'd also like to thank everybody who has helped support the show, either by leaving us a review at iTunes, TuneIn, Stitcher, or wherever it is you listen to the show, or by becoming a patron on Patreon. I couldn't do this without all of you. Thank you. Our theme music was, as always, The Old Captain by the fantastic band Brillig. If you haven't checked them out yet, I certainly suggest you do so at brillig.com.au. That's B-R-I-L-L-I-G.com.au. After you're done over there, why not check out our website at piratehistorypodcast.com, or you can check us out on Facebook, Twitter, SoundCloud, or YouTube. As always, most importantly, thank you for listening.